turn, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 15. <clears throat> Tonight, we are going to be learning about Christian giving, and it's the grace of financial giving. And it won't be a wholesale um, or, be, or be so broad that we talk about financial stewardship as a whole, though There'll be many principles that we will see in this passage um, that we'll draw out. But we'll get, we'll get a well-rounded picture of Christian giving. Uh, but when, whenever you talk about giving from the pulpit in particular, there's only one other topic that could so uh, rile up our old man and fleshly sensibilities. And that would be if this sermon were on the topic of obesity and overeating. It is a truism that from the pulpit, food and money are sure ways to push people out the door. But nevertheless, every word is inspired, and we need to seek to understand every topic and every passage in Scripture. And certainly giving in both the old and the new are, are, uh, are throughout the Scripture. So tonight we're going to examine what uh, Paul is teaching us what the Word of God has for us in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. But I'll start with prayer, and then I'll, I'll begin with an introduction before I read the passage. So let's pray one more time. Father, help us to uh, understand, to learn, to grasp what you have for us in this rich text. Thank you again for your kindness and mercy and your grace. These passages are filled with grace, and literally the word grace. And may it be from grace, Lord, that we, that we give. And may it be for your grace to us that, that, we, uh, that, that springs from us a desire to give to your church and to your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of introduction, let me make uh, two, two general points. And uh, I think they're general and uh, straightforward and, and, and probably obvious. The first is that uh, there are pitfalls associated with, with giving our finances. And secondly, and I think this is also straightforward, that the giving to God financially can also be a reflection of prideful hearts. And this is what I mean. Regardless of the amount we give or the proportion we give, we can turn giving into a cold moral duty. It can be a, it can be a cold moral duty. We can, we can give with bitterness and sourness, and we can, have it, we can do that with a smile on our face. Or we can, we can give and it can puff up our pride. We can give with arrogance and self-satisfaction and, and perhaps even competitiveness, and we can do that with a smile on our face as well. So I think this is one of those topics that, that we have a tight grip on. And it's not that we can have a tight grip on our finances. We, we may give and give generously and, and freely and without compulsion, and we should. But we have a tight grip, I think, on, or we can have a tight grip on our understanding of giving. And I think that can impede the true joy of, of the grace of giving. And so at, because of that, uh, and at the outset, I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1 and 2. Read that, 
give a quick summary of that, and I think that'll set us on our way for uh, understanding uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. So, turn with me to the, to the previous book, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Paul writes, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. I read that because I came across a wonderful way to encapsulate that, to summarize that by Sam Storms, and I just want to to give these four points that he, he cites. In this passage here, as we're going to break down and summarize, and uh, just in general, giving financial gifts to God should be purposeful, periodical, private, and proportionate. So look there in verse, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, we don't give unto God by giving to the local window factory that's down the street. That may be a wise investment, but Christian giving first begins with giving to God and giving to God's church. It's for the saints. Secondly, it's periodical. You see this in verse 2. Note that it says, on the first day of the week. And at the very least, this means we are to regularly set something aside and be consistent in doing so. It is also private. That's also in verse 2. Let each one of you put aside. Each one of us is to put aside. There's no, uh, like in golf, leader's board put up on the screen. And sadly, a friend of mine told me of a story at a previous church where the uh, highest givers were invited in into some special dinner and recognition for their large offerings that they give. And that is not private, and it shows partiality. And I say it's, it's sin, in fact. Let each of, one, each of us put aside, and that's a private affair. So it's purposeful, periodical, private, and also proportionate. The text says again in verse 2 that as he may prosper, as he may prosper, and we'll come to this in 2 Corinthians as well when we, when we turn back there. But we don't give based on a, on a flat tax. We give as... As, uh, as God has blessed, as He has blessed, and hasn't He blessed you, fellow Christians? God's people are to give unto God's work as He may prosper. And we'll draw that out in just a minute. But giving is to be purposeful, periodical, private, and proportionate. So let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I think that's helpful for us as we begin to focus on this text. Let me read it first. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, 
but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Amen. That is God's holy word. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are to be read together. They give us the full, fullest picture of Christian giving in the New Testament. And I want to start by defining what we mean by giving. Giving means the offering of our earthly possessions to the Lord, and specifically, and most often, our financial possessions. And it's for the work of the ongoing ministry or support the ministry for some special dire circumstances. And always offering it generously and joyfully and sacrificially. So one more time, giving, giving is the offering of earthly financial possessions to the Lord for the work of the ongoing ministry or to support the ministry for some special circumstance. And that's what we see here in this special giving in chapter 8 to the church in Jerusalem. And always offering it generously, joyfully, and sacrificially. In chapters 8 and 9, the word grace appears at least 10 times. Ten times here as it relates to giving. And we know what grace is. We know that it is God's love and favor and kindness, all of which we do not deserve. And the Greek word uh, charis is found in, in English translated words like generosity and give and gratitude. And we can hear the word charis and the word charismata, can't we? Uh, which means spiritual gifts. You know that charismatics, in fact, are those that believe in the ongoing nature of the sign gifts, like speaking in tongues. So charis, or grace, appearing at least ten times here in, this, in these two chapters. These two chapters are centered around grace. And did you notice, as we read, that Paul does not mention money? It's not, it's not that he's mentioning the amount of money. Really, it's, it's uh, what he's addressing and also in that 1 Corinthians 16 passage, it's the more or less attachment to the money. 
that we should be thinking about. The question is, is our heart attached to the money and how it satisfies us? Or is our heart attached to the grace of Christ who secured for his people everlasting, glorious communion and peace, though we deserved only condemnation? Paul doesn't emphasize the money. He emphasizes the generosity and the grace of giving. And so, again, Paul's focus here in, in, in chapter 9 is centered around grace. In verses 1 through 5, Paul, Paul describes the wealth and generosity of these Macedonians. So he's writing to the Corinthian church, a second letter, and he's referring to the, to the generosity, the abundant generosity of these Macedonians. And uh, incidentally, perhaps, but I think this is interesting and incredible, that about 375 years earlier, the Macedonians conquered the Greeks. And that would have included the city of Corinth and the, and the, the cities that Paul first came to as he, as he came into Europe were the Macedonian churches, the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica and even Berea. These churches were giving in great abundance despite their own poverty. Paul's using these Macedonians, these churches, just to the north of them, just the north of Corinth, as an example when he tells the Corinthians to give themselves unto the Lord, to give generously unto the saints in Jerusalem. So he's saying, give unto the Lord, Corinthians, generously. Give unto the saints that are in Jerusalem, just as the Macedonian church did. So this is what Paul is saying. He's saying, give yourselves abundantly to the gracious Lord by freely giving generously to the Lord's people, just as your brethren in Macedonia have done. It's important to note also, though, that he's not guilting them. He, he's not, he's not uh, just, there is some uh, compare. he's urging them on to give generously. He is pointing to the brethren that are giving generously. He's using them as an example, but he's not guilting them. He's describing how the Macedonians were taking part in God's work. You see that in verse 4. And I think this is the, the broad application we can draw from, from verses 1 through 5. Now, giving is, in fact, an, an act of grace. It says that clearly. It is an act of grace which allows us to take part in God's work. The grace of God is given to us. See that in verse 1. And, of course, that necessarily includes saving grace, but it's also God's ongoing provision to us, His ongoing gracious provision to us. And as a result of our apprehension of these abundant blessings, we then freely, graciously, generously give to God and God through God's people to the body of Christ. Paul here doesn't tell the Corinthians how much they should give. That gets to the idea of proportionate. And neither, as we know, should any minister. He says in verse 3, they gave of their own accord. They decided. They were convinced. They were convicted. They freely offered. They were not compelled, and neither should we be. They didn't give also in order to get something in return. They were already in poverty, and they gave. 
they didn't, as I already said, give out of guilt. They didn't give because, in our, like in our day, the televangelist tells them they're going to get uh, wealth by doing so. But they gave of their own accord. Look at verse 4. This is one of those amazing verses that'll, that'll, that you can just run right over if you don't stop and pause and see how amazing this is. If you don't believe in the authority and infallibility of Scripture, you, may, you, you just wouldn't believe it. Look what the Macedonians did in verse 4. It says that they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged for the favor of giving. They pleaded urgently to give. Have you, have you ever heard of anyone doing this? Have ch- your children or gran- grandchildren ever said, come to you and said, I want, you know, I, 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 here's my piggy bank, you know, take my money. It's not a normal occurrence, especially for people in extreme poverty. This is, in fact, a powerful picture of what God can do in a man's heart. What the grace of God can do in a man's heart. But, but notice also in verse 5, he says, Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And I think that's a really, really powerful and important point. They gave themselves first to the Lord. And then they gave financially and begged to do so. This is what we see in Romans 12, 1. I've been spending some time there, and it occurred to me as I'm reading that verse 8, 5, that 12, 1, and many others say the same thing. Paul, in Romans 12, 1, a very familiar passage, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, or in other translations, your reasonable service. He then goes on in verse 2 to tell his readers, do not be conformed to this world. But there's an order there. And there's an order here in 2 Corinthians. So the, the give yourselves unto God in 2 Corinthians is like that present your bodies as a living sacrifice in Romans 12, and that it's the starting place. It's the starting place. It's always the starting place. Here it is again in Matthew 6 from the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus. He says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It was indeed God's will for the Macedonians to overflow in a wealth of generosity. For they had first been drinking from the well of living water. And Paul is commending the the Macedonians to the Corinthians as an example to do the same. Go to the well as they did. Seek Christ first and then give as an act of grace. It is God's will for everyone who has their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life to also overflow in a wealth of generosity. We see this also in verse 7. Paul says, "In "...excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness." And in our love for you, see that you excel 
in this act of grace also. But more than just a Macedonian example, yeah, he, he, he's urging the Corinthians to give and to be generous and to not do so under compulsion, but of their own accord to give. And he's using the Macedonians as an example of that. And he's pointing out that the Macedonians, in fact, gave themselves to Christ first, which is the appropriate pattern. But more than a Macedonian example, look what he does in verse 9. We, they and we have the example of Christ. It is incredible how this verse is placed right here in these two chapters related to giving. This is such a rich text, this verse 9, and I, and I mean that pun sincerely. This passage is beautiful, and it's poetic, and it's doctrinal, and it's pure gospel, and it's Christ-exalting. And let's look at it in the, in the natural three parts that we see here. We see that Christ is rich. We see that Christ became poor. And that we, we see that we have become rich on account of Christ becoming poor. So let's ask ourselves first, what does it mean that Christ is rich? What does it mean that Christ is rich? Well, it means that Jesus Christ is eternal. He's uncreated and unceasingly emanates glory. In his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus begins his prayer like this. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What does it mean that Christ is rich? It also means that Christ is God. The doctrine of the Trinity teaches us that there is one God in three persons. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are distinct persons, but they're one in being or, or essence or substance. Of course, John 1 uh, comes to mind. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What does it mean that Christ is rich? It means that He emanates glory. It means that He's truly God. He is, he is God in the flesh. We read this in James 2.1, where, where James says that He is the Lord of glory. Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. Yes, Jesus is rich. And for Jesus is, is glorious and beautiful and powerful, and He's the mighty Lord who is self-existent. Yes, He is rich. But this rich second person of the Trinity, this self-existent God of ours, became poor. And what does it mean that Christ became poor? I think we answer that in two ways. First, first and most obvious is that He entered into this world as a human, in human flesh by being sent 
from heaven to earth in the incarnation. And we see this more, most fully in Second Corinthians, uh, excuse me, in Philippians chapter two, uh, beginning at verse five through verse eight. Paul writes, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who." Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ's very essence and identity is one with the Father. That is what in the form of God means in that passage in verse 6. So this high and heavenly being, this second person of the Trinity, emptied himself and took on flesh. He became poor. He did not cease to become holy God. He voluntarily subjected himself and became a human person. He lost none of his divine attributes, but he added human nature, and that without sin. Therefore, Jesus is the God-man, isn't he? He's truly God and truly man. There's no mixture of those two natures. The human and the divine natures, we distinguish, but we don't separate. So this is what it means that Christ became poor, by taking on human nature for our sake. But that's just the beginning of our understanding of how he became poor. He became incarnate in human flesh, yes. In the womb of Mary, yes. But the humble and meek God-man was also obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is what the fullness of what it means for believers to be rich on account of Christ becoming poor. Listen to the confession chapter 13, the third section. The divines write that Christ, by His obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified, and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to His Father's justice in their behalf. Their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of the sinners. We became rich when He became poor. Or to put it as Paul put it a few chapters earlier in 2 Corinthians, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So brothers and sisters... Let's meditate on what Christ has accomplished for us, how Christ has made us rich. The infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-wise, powerful, holy, and just and good God in the person of the Son broke His body and shed His blood for your sake, the text reads, for your sake. You now, Christian, are rich in Christ. That means the peace of Christ rules in your heart, and the power of Christ is made perfect in your weakness. 
and the life of Christ is made manifest in your flesh. That phrase, in Christ, that phrase is used at least 150 times in the Pauline epistles. We are rich indeed in Christ. Paul inserts this magnificent verse really to encourage us, I believe. To encourage the Corinthians, of course, and to encourage them, and then, of course, by us, to us. To encourage the Corinthians to look to Christ first before they look to their wallet. To look to Christ first before they look to their wallet. Again, this is all in the context of Christian giving. Paul inserts it to, remember, to, to remind us, to remind the Corinthians to remember how Christ gave before they think of giving themselves. Their giving and, and then our giving should be selfless and, and magnanimous and sacrificial and under no compulsion and driven by grace. For this is how Christ first gave to us. So yes, yes, give. Give, church. Give because of grace and give as an act of grace. And let me end with this. We are to give generously and give cheerfully. We do not do so under compulsion. But then there will be blessing. Of course, there's already rich blessing. Eternal blessing. We have it now. For as the Christian stands now, he stands justified and no longer condemned. So we are rich in Christ as Christians, but more blessings follow. Turn to chapter 9, verses 6 and 8, and I'll end here. Paul says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God is able to make grace abound. Paul doesn't say that giving leads to monetary gain. He says we will abound in the grace of contentment, though. How about that for, for, for turning the world on its head? We give and will abound in the grace of contentment and, in fact, will abound in good works. And this is God's amazing promise. Give and you'll abound in contentment. Give and you'll abound in, in good works by the grace of God. So, in, in a sentence, I would summarize by saying, seek Christ first. Go to the, go to the well Go to the living waters. Then, and only then, give generously and give cheerfully and, and not under compulsion. And blessing and grace will abound. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word, your infallible and inerrant word. We praise you for your majesty and glory. And you came down and made yourself poor. You became a human in flesh and in weakness and voluntarily subjected yourself 
But that was not the end. You went to the cross for our sake, for the believer's sake, for your elect's sake. And you paid the penalty for their sin. And you broke the power of sin in their life, in our lives, in the believer's life. And even that wasn't the end, Father. You rose from the dead. And you reign from on high even now. And you have sent your Holy Spirit into our hearts. So help us, glorious God, give us understanding as we think more deeply upon these things as we leave here tonight. We give you all the praise in your glorious name. Amen.